Well, we all love a good story, don't we? We, we love a good plot line with twists and turns. Uh, so whether it's a movie or it's a book or it's a show, uh, we enjoy who the heroes are, we enjoy who the villains are, and all the surprises that come along the way. I think one of the very best of plot twists, one that really gets us when we're engrossed in a story, is when someone who's supposed to be dead is actually alive. And you think about it, actually, this is all over the stories that we love. So, first three that came to mind for me. So take Sherlock Holmes, for example. He disappears in what looks like a fight with his archenemy, Moriarty. And all seems lost. But then he comes back in disguise. And just waiting for him to shock everyone. Or Aragorn in uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He's dragged off a cliff in battle. But later, look who's back. Ready to fight the dark armies of Mordor. Or Harry Potter, who was seemingly killed, but then comes back to life to destroy Voldemort and his powers of evil. As we watch those movies, as we watch or read those books, we're at first shocked, perhaps, grieved by the loss of the one we thought was going to make everything okay. But then all sorrow is changed and actually surpassed when we realize, no, wait, this person's alive. They're coming back. In our passage for this morning from the book of Ephesians, we see one of those kind of plot twists up close. We see what looks to be like the worst of realities imaginable suddenly turn into the best news in the world. We see death turn into life. But unlike those those stories, those examples I just mentioned, where we see kind of behind the scenes afterwards, we see, oh, they actually weren't dead. They were either kind of resuscitated or, you know, everybody just presumed they were dead. Here in Ephesians, we see the story of true resurrection. And at the center of the plot line is is Jesus and, believe it or not, you and me, as we're united to him. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to the New Testament letter of Ephesians. So this is our fourth Sunday considering this book together. And it's a, it's a letter written by a missionary named Paul to a group of churches in what is now the modern-day country of Turkey. And this morning we arrive in chapter 2. And we see kind of all the things that Paul's been talking about in chapter 1, all these wonderful big ideas he's been describing narrowed down and brought to bear on our personal lives, our own storylines. Uh, if you're here and you, and you don't have a Bible that you can follow along with, don't worry about that, just, just listen. Um, but if you don't have a Bible at home that you can actually read well, uh, on the Connect table on the way out, there's a stack of Bibles. So take one, take two, take three, hand them out. They're for you and for your use. That's our gift to you. Well, for this morning's sermon, we'll be looking at three things together. So if you're taking notes, these will be our three points. So first, we'll look at the first three verses, and we'll consider spiritual death. And then we'll look at the remainder of the passage, verses 4 to 7, and consider spiritual life. And then finally, we'll wrap up with a time of application. 
So let's look at there first at spiritual death. Follow along as I read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But Paul doesn't pull any punches. He gets right to the point, and he says, You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And the you he's talking about there are Gentiles, those who were not Jews, not part of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. He, or they, he says, were dead in sin. Uh, Now, at the risk of being Captain Obvious, he doesn't mean here physical death. Just putting that out there. He's, he's writing to these people who are presumably alive and can listen to his words. He says that they once walked in sin. They were very much physically alive. And Paul here is talking about these folks and their relationship with their creator, God. He's saying they were separated from him. Separated from the one in whom is all and from whom comes all spiritual life. But Paul here is talking about spiritual death in their sin, in their rebellion against God. These Gentiles were spiritually dead. And this spiritual problem didn't end with first century non-Jews. So Paul will go on in verse 3 to say, we. So he's lumping his people, the Jews, in with them in this state. And extends also to everyone in Adam, everyone apart from Christ. Everyone here this morning. This is our condition apart from Christ. And brothers and sisters, we need to see this afresh this morning. So what does this spiritual death look like? Well, Paul takes us a bit on a bit of a tour, tour in these next few verses. And he goes in depth to diagnose this spiritual condition. So let's look at three aspects of that diagnosis in these uh, first three verses. So first there in verse 2. He says that we were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So Paul is describing an active following, an active pursuit. And and what were we pursuing? Well, first he says we were following the course of this world. This world in rebellion against God. So at the very beginning of the world, God was creator. He, he made us. He made everything. And he did so with a specific purpose. And that was to get glory to himself. But after sin entered the world, everything changed. The world rejected God. It, it turned away from its creator. And ever since, we've tried to make things work. Tried to make this life make sense without God. Without the one who kind of put everything into being in the first place. And so the course of this world, this kind of status of setting ourselves up against our Creator, our God, not acknowledging any dependence on Him, has led us to elevate ourselves or to elevate others, to glorify some part of God's creation, anything other than God, so we won't be accountable to Him. So we we kind of doggedly pursue the rebellion of the world. We, We sign on to the opposing force. We pledge allegiance 
to God's enemy. And it's not like we're forced into it either. No, we rush into it. Paul says we walked in it. We followed after it. Friends, our spiritual death is an active death. It's set against God, against His rule. In our sin, we, we hate God. We want Him dead. Then we'd be free from His rule. And so the course of this world, that's what the age of this world desires, and that's our desire in our spiritual death. Paul goes on to say that we followed the prince of the power of the air there in verse 2. And that sounds kind of vague, kind of creepy. Who is this? It's Satan, right? It's, it's the devil himself, God's chief enemy, God's first opponent. Really the one who had first distorted God's words and caused God's creation to doubt his goodness. So we just talked about the creation, the beginning of the world. Let's go back there. So we remember that God was created perfectly, but then Satan came on the scene, right? And what, what did he do? He started asking questions. He started doubting God's intentions. He set up some maybes for, for Adam to think about. Maybe, maybe God's plan isn't so good. Maybe he's all about squashing you and making himself everything. Do you want that? Well, Adam gave in. He, he second-guessed God. He fell into sin, into rebellion against God. And that's really been his game plan ever since. Tempting us. Turning us away from the truth. Causing us maybe to distrust God a little bit. And in our sin, in the spiritual death that Paul's writing about, we follow after that. We follow after that devil wholeheartedly. He's our ringleader. He's the prince. He's got authority. He's got power to deceive us. To work against God's good purposes. Listen, Paul's not being superstitious here. He's not paranoid. He's not overly spiritualistic. No, he's stating the truth that in our spiritual deadness, we stumble along after Satan. We hate God like he hates God. And we want to promote ourselves as God, just like he did in the very beginning. And so Paul rightly says that after him we follow. He's our forerunner in this rebellion against our Creator. Paul goes on there in verse 2 to show that Satan is very much still at work. So he's the ruler of the Spirit, not at work in the sons of disobedience, Paul says. So Satan is actively at work to throw God's plan off track, to get glory for himself, to rob God of the worship that he deserves. And so what does he do? He blinds us to the truth. He darkens our eyes. He distracts us with lesser things. And friends, the, the sober thing is that we're part of this plan. We're active participants with the devil. So we can't just sit back as many have and say, oh, well, that's terrible. Look what the devil made us do, right? No, understand that in our spiritual death, we're in league with this devil. We're on his team. We have the same foe that he has, the the creator himself. So Paul brings this to light in verse 3 where he speaks of that we. So not just the Gentiles now, but everyone, Jew, Gentile, Free, slave, every single one of us are sons of disobedience. And not only are we active opponents of God, but we're not only are we on Satan's team, but in and of ourselves we're driven along in this death by what we want and what we crave. That's a, 
the second aspect of our spiritual death we see here. It's our slavery to our flesh. Paul says there in verse 3 that we lived in the passions of our flesh. And that doesn't just mean, like that kind of brings to mind kind of sensual desires. But this refers to both our body and our mind, as Paul will go on to say. So we lived in all the desires of a heart set up against God, whatever that would mean. And into those desires, we just rushed. And as we did so, as we've done so, it's kind of given us the illusion that we are God, I think. So we've replaced him with ourselves. And now, you know, we're God. We can do whatever we want to do. Our will is supreme. We are sovereign. We are God. It's that first lie Satan told Adam, and we bought into it. And where has it gotten us? Well, as we live like our own gods, as we live according to everything that we just desire and crave, I think, ironically, we end up realizing that we're not in charge at all. We're now enslaved. The passions that we thought we could just use to get ourselves glory have become our bosses, our masters, and they're terrible and abusive gods. They drag us into sin. So, so think about it. That longing for people's approval, whether it's a parent, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your, your boss in the workplace, that longing will drive us to do nearly anything to get it. Maybe that that rush of blood to our face when our spouse puts his or her finger on something we did wrong. Or when our child pushes all of our buttons at the same time. Or Or that staunch pride that refuses to admit wrong. That's the last resort. We will not recognize that truth. Or the need to get back at somebody. That bitterness that eats at us, consumes us. That slow, methodical decision to purchase pornography and watch it hour after hour. That need for food or drink that controls us and leaves us craving it until we can get it again. Folks, as we serve our desires, we're not God anymore. We're not the boss. We're enslaved. We're controlled. We're like cattle with that ring in our nose where you can just put the hook in it and just drag the cow wherever you want it to go. That, that's us. And we do this honestly because sin gives us an illusion of life. That, that rush of appreciation, that assurance of self-righteousness, that shout of anger, it feels like life. It feels good. But it's always a lie. It's a hoax. Sin never ends in life. And yet we keep going back to it, thinking it will, one more time. It's it's insanity. We're dupes. Trying to get something from from our sin that has never produced. We're enslaved to it. We're carrying it out, as Paul says there in verse 3. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I wonder if this just sounds like typical Christian hellfire and brimstone preaching, right? You know, the, the things you've heard, something to the effect of, you're all sinners, you're all immoral, you deserve hell, God doesn't want you to enjoy life, you've got to get together, you've got, you got to go to church, you've got to stop partying, clean yourself up, maybe you'll get to heaven. Friends, that's not the heart of what Paul is getting at at all. Paul's simply being honest. 
He's looking at the sinful desires of his heart, the sinful desires of our hearts, and he's seeing that we've made them our gods, and they're terrible gods. Our pride, our anger, our unbelief, these things just use us and leave us empty and heartbroken. I mean, take sex, for example. It's a good thing. It's created by God to be enjoyable and for His glory. But what happens when we make sex our God? It functions terribly. It takes on way more weight than it was ever meant to take. When we worship it, it always fails us. Affirmation from other people. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. But when we invest in other people all our meaning and we rely on them to make us feel needed in that way, they will always let us down. They will disappoint us. And oftentimes the relationship will go up in flames. See, even our good desires, when we make them our gods, are distorted in our spiritual death. We want any god but the one true God. And this spiritual death has us enslaved. We can do nothing to save ourselves. We're in this for the long haul. We can't even desire God and turn to Him. Paul speaks to this in Romans 8, where he says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So friends, in our sin, we are unable to turn to God. We are are helpless wretches. Paul hasn't even gotten to the worst part yet. So we've seen him point out the aspect of following the world and its prince, the aspect of setting up our desires and living according to them. But Paul there in verse 3 will go on to show us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see, God in His goodness and perfection has determined not to leave us in our rebellion, but to judge us. To bring justice to bear. And so as an outworking of his perfect character, his perfect holiness, his wrath burns hot against our sin. And this is the state we've been born into. Children of wrath. There's nothing we can do to get out of this penalty from, of death. I know that's not popular to say nowadays. God's not vengeful, people say. He's compassionate. He's loving. He's, he's not wrathful. He's not Ebenezer Scrooge. He's not a hater. He loves everybody. Everyone is God's child. Everyone will get a hug when they come to the pearly gates. Why would you talk about God like that? That's so medieval. Certainly God was like that in the Old Testament, right? He killed people in the Old Testament. New Testament, Jesus, different ballgame. He's loving. Friends, remember, God is never merely who we just want him to be. He's the ruler. He's the king. He never changes. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. Now the reason we don't understand God's wrath is because we don't understand sin. God's wrath seems excessive because our sins seem moderate. God's justice seems overly harsh because our sins seem relatively inoffensive. God's judgment against sin sin seems mean because we think of our sins as maybe needing a, a slap on the wrist. The only time we really like God's justice is when it's focused on someone we don't like. Back up, folks. Look at this picture Paul has painted. Look at these people created by God for His glory, 
And then look as they doubt His goodness, as they reject Him, as they elevate themselves and their desires as God in His place and wonder at your own sense of justice if you don't understand God's need to condemn this treason and bring His justice to bear. It's just what's right. We're all under His wrath. We're all spiritually dead. So this morning we need to realize that we deceive ourselves whenever we think our spiritual problem lies in the fact that we're, we're essentially good, but we've made bad choices. That we're okay, we just need to get back on track. In one of his hit songs a few years ago, Tim McGraw put it like this. I ain't no angel. I still got a few more dances with the devil. Cleaning up my act little by little. I'm getting there. I can finally stand the man in the mirror I see. I ain't as good as I'm going to get. But I'm better than I used to be. Folks, listen, I know this is putting my cards on the table. I can enjoy Tim McGraw from time to time. But these lyrics are a lie. Apart from Christ, any effort we have to clean up our act is just another way of rebelling against God and trying to find satisfaction and the answer for life in ourselves. It's like trying to apply mascara and lipstick to a corpse. No amount of touch-up, no amount of lifelike makeup can make us something we're simply not. We are dead in our sins, unable to choose God, to feel love for Him. Or to turn to him. And Christian, remember that this was you. Even if you can't remember a day when you didn't say you were a Christian, this was you, apart from Christ. Even if you had a squeaky clean image and you didn't commit any scandalous sins, you were just as dead as the worst sinner on earth. And so, in this state of spiritual death, what was God to do? Was he to judge us and merely have done with it? Was he to send us to eternal punishment for our rebellion and start over like he did with the flood in the Old Testament? What were we to do? What could we do? It seems like a done deal there at the end of verse 3, right? It feels like that's part in a story when we're reading it and just all hope is lost. Nothing can change. Well, actually, one thing could happen. The only thing we could hope for in this status, in this position of spiritual death, is that God might do something about it. That he might somehow, in his power, be disposed towards us, not in justice, not in wrath, but in mercy and grace. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that change these scary realities we've just considered? Well, look there in verse 4 as we come to our second point. Spiritual life. Verse 4, but God. There it is. There's our only hope, and it's here. It's come. So the only hope we could have ever had is that God would stoop down and change something. That he would have mercy on us and somehow alter our fate. And here's the answer. But God. This is the part of the movie where all seems to be lost, but then everything shifts and the story is turned on its head. Here is that moment. But God. There are no no two words more glorious in all of history than but God. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. We were following the course of this world. But God. We were following the prince of the air. But God. We were living in the passions of our flesh. But God. We were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But God. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. And he's right. These two words show that we, we could never have gone to him, God came to us. When all our pursuits were directed away from God, he pursued us. And he stopped us. And he turned us. And he saved us. What does this life look like? Verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has made us alive. This is what the Bible calls regeneration. It's that phrase that Jesus uses in John 3, being born again. And just as a baby has nothing to do with being born, so we have nothing to do with attaining this new life on our own. God's mercy has happened to us. He's turned in grace. Amazing grace. Remember what Jason read for us earlier from Ezekiel, where God promised to take our hearts of stone, so hearts that are unresponsive to God, cold towards His love, and replace them with hearts of flesh, hearts tender toward God, eager to find in Him salvation and joy. Elsewhere in Ezekiel, we see a powerful image of this regeneration, of this new life in the spiritually dead. So, in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, we see a vision that the prophet Ezekiel has from the Lord. And and this is what he says. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel sees these bones, and they're very dry, beyond dead, brittle, decaying. And God asks this all-important question, can these bones live? The question that we asked at the end of verse 3 in Ephesians 2. Can spiritually dead people become spiritually alive? Can those dead in trespasses live again? And the verses that follow, you can look them up later this afternoon. 
Ezekiel obeys and he sees the word of the Lord restore life to dry bones. They begin to develop sinews and muscle and before long they stand as a vast army. Friends, this is how we are made alive. This is how we're made new. The Holy Spirit opens our ears to hear, understand, and respond to the word of God. ugliness of our sin, the the beauty of Christ, all becomes clear to us and he leads us to repent of our sins and to trust in God. This is the work of God to save us, stony-hearted, dry-boned, spiritually dead sinners. What, What wonderful news. And if you're here and you don't identify yourself as a Christian, this news is for you. In our sin, we cannot save ourselves. We can never turn to God. We can never avoid His wrath, but praise Him. He turned to us. He sent Jesus to die in our place, to bear the death that we deserve, to be cut off from God so that we could be joined to God. On the cross, as He died, Jesus took on Himself all our sin. And God poured out all His righteous wrath, not on us, but on Christ. And then He rose again showing he had victory over sin, over death, over Satan, so that he could give us newness of life, making us alive. So, non-Christian friend, turn to this Jesus. See this wonderful news. Repent. Leave your sin, leave your desires that will never satisfy you, and turn to Christ. In him you'll find abundant life. If you have questions about that or you'd like to learn more about that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards or you can find somebody at the Connect table or somebody who's sitting up here. We'd love to explain to you what it means to have life in Christ. And Christian, take this opportunity to pause and reflect on the work that's been done in your heart. Our closing hymn this morning will describe it like a jail cell. Unable to free ourselves shackled to the wall with no hope of kind of reaching for the key or tricking the jailer to give it to us. And then, and then, but God. And the dark dungeon suddenly bursts with light and all becomes clear and our our chains fall off and our hearts are set free and we get up and we run out of the cell and we follow Christ. Christian, this is your story. This is your biography. This is your death to life plot twist. Rejoice in it. Share it with others. You've been brought from death to life. Well, Paul goes on in verses 5 to 7 to show us exactly what this new life is looking like. And, And again, just like we've seen in our first three sermons in this letter, it has everything to do with union with Christ. So being united to Christ, being what Paul says, in Christ or with Christ. So look at those three verbs that he uses in those last three verses. He says that we are made alive together, what? With Christ. And then what? We're raised us, he's raised us up, what? With Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. Christian, this is your identity. This is your hope that you're united to Christ, and so what he's done is what you have done. You have conquered death as he has conquered death. You've been given victory as he is enthroned in victory. And you've been guaranteed an inheritance with him in his kingdom. 
As Jesus is exalted over all that is evil, we have been exalted and have power to deny our flesh and our sin. In Jesus, we win. His position is our position. His defeat of death is our defeat of death. We're joined to Him. And in a way, we're already seated with Him. Our future is secure. And even now, even now we see evidence of this new life in us. We see it in our hearts as we have new desires, new affections. We notice it in our thoughts as we see the fruits of the Spirit maturing in us and as we see joy and peace and patience and gentleness become more attractive to us. The way in which we once walked no longer looks so appealing. It doesn't seem like it can satisfy us. Instead, it becomes clearer and clearer that Jesus can, and in Him alone. So remember, Christian, you've been made new. You now have love for others who before seemed unlovable. The gospel has changed you. You've been regenerated, born again. Church, what, what mercy. We have not received what we deserve, God's wrath. Instead, we've received this promise of immeasurable riches of grace. Even when we were dead, even when we were enemies. Remember back when Joe read for us from Romans 5 in the beginning of the service. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We sang earlier, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath, completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. So church, you who are in Christ, meditate on this. What difference should this new life mean for you this week? What, what difference should it make that you are now alive? That you've ascended into God's presence in Christ? That in the heavenly places, in the spiritual reality all around us, we are enthroned with Him? Well, let's close briefly with three points of application. So we've looked at spiritual death, we've looked at spiritual life, so what? Three things. First, and we, we talked about this last week, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I think it's important. This passage should help us in our fight against sin. Because, Christian, if you're honest with yourself, at times you still feel carried along by your desires. Enslaved by your passions. So whether it's anger, or, or lust, or lying, or gluttony, or greed, or people-pleasing, or bitterness. At times, our sin controls us. We feel like we live at its beck and call. Christian sin no longer exercises dominion over you. That was the way you once walked, Paul says, but no longer. So yes, we still struggle tooth and nail with temptation and sin that still beckons us. And we will fail and we will falter. 
We're not yet glorified. We're not yet holy and blameless. But until that day, we will struggle in new life. New affections and new joys that have been planted in us by the Spirit at work in us. So brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you have these things, even in seedling form in your heart. So nurture it. Go to God's Word. Ask for a Spirit to give you fresh vitality. Get involved in each other's lives and see how one another is maturing in this. Don't, don't just starve your fleshly cravings. Indulge yourself in feasting on Christ. Rejoice in the Gospel. Second point of application. This passage should help us grow in compassion in the way we look at those around us who are not Christians. Because what does Paul say is true of them? They're spiritually dead. They're by nature children of wrath. So what mercy ought we to have on them? What fervent prayers we should pray that they would be saved? Christian, let's not fall into the trap of just expecting non-believers to act like they're alive to God. Let's not be satisfied with them showing some form of morality or compliance with biblical principles. They don't have Christ. They are pursuing sin like we once did. Without Christ, they are still dead in it, no matter how moral they want to appear. So let's not roll our eyes in disgust or build up walls when we see them rejecting God and seeking meaning in other things. Instead, the gospel drives us to show them compassion. We're not compelled to make them follow our lifestyle. We're compelled to show them Christ. Pastor and writer in England, Richard Koken, puts it this way. We mustn't be naively shocked or bitterly vengeful when an aggressive colleague or a religious extremist or government officer is hostile to law-abiding Christians. Let's not be arrogant towards those who are still under the devil's influence. For we were all once captive to his lies. So Christian, do you feel this compassion for the lost around you? I don't say this to guilt you. I say this to encourage you. Let's allow the gospel to take root in our lives and, and build up this fruit of compassion. Compassion for the obnoxious co-worker in the office. Compassion for the gay couple who just moved in on our block. Compassion for the angry, cursing parents at our kids' sporting events. Let's not keep our distance and judge them from afar. Let's not be turned off. Because apart from Christ, we were all in the same boat. We were all dead in sin. All hell-bound. All immediately willing at a moment's notice to satisfy any craving that we might have. So let's view those around us with mercy and compassion. Let's build relationships with them. Let's be their friends, not those who merely pity them from afar. Let's not keep our distance. For if the Lord kept his distance from us, we would be forever lost. Third and final point of application. This passage should help us grow in hope of what's to come. Look there at verse 7 one last time. So God has done all this. He's made us alive. He's raised us with Christ. He's seated us with Christ. Why? For what purpose? So that in the coming ages He might show 
the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Church, God is not finished with us yet. Look at this, look at this future we have in store. This future that Paul keeps redirecting our eyes up towards over and over again. Look at it. God is coming, and He's not coming in wrath. He's coming in mercy. And not just mercy, but immeasurable riches of kindness and grace. These things are directed towards us. So consider your future. Experiencing God's kindness forever. You think back to this past week. It's church, it's Sunday morning. We can feel kind of like, oh yeah, this is true. What, what about on Wednesday? What about on Thursday when we felt driven down by sin and burdened and tired? Where were you tempted to think that God's grace was going to run out for you? That he might just give up. Look ahead, where might that come up this coming week? Church, turn from that doubt. Look again, open-eyed into the grace of God. Look to the Savior who called you out of death and marvel again at His life-giving grace. Grace rich. Grace so immeasurable. Christian, this amazing love is yours forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask for your mercy on us this morning yet again. Lord, give us a fresh vision of your grace. Through this passage, give us eyes to see how magnificent you are, how wonderful you are, what you've done to save us. Blow up our our small visions of you and give us again this grand, glorious view of the one who has purposed to save us when we could not save ourselves and has stored up riches for us that will last in eternity. Lord, may that vision pry our fingers off of the lesser pleasures of the world. May we turn to you because we no longer dread any condemnation for we are in Christ. Help us now as as we sing as we respond to this word by rejoicing in our regeneration in our new hearts. Lord, help us to sing and to understand this even more clearly as we confess these truths together with one voice. In Jesus' name, amen.